let's pray for Gary as he comes and speaks this morning. Father, we thank you so much for Gary and uh, for the rest of the Furlers. Thank you that he's already been preaching today, already been leading church services today. And we're so grateful that he's here. And uh, we pray that you would open our hearts, Holy Spirit, to glimpse something more of the incredible call that you have on our lives and the amazing way that you want to use us outside of the doors of our church services in the rest of the week. So be with us, we pray. Amen. Amen. How are you doing today? Great. It's great to see you. Uh, We're going to, it's interesting, my daughter invited me to attend a church called Vintage uh, some time ago, and we started out in Santa Monica and then ended up migrating here because we live closer to here. And it is interesting, one of the first times I came here, somebody was here, I think it was the Holy Trinity Church in Brompton, uh, Ben would say. It's a church where Alpha started and so forth, and it just turns out that in 1981, when most of you weren't alive, uh, in 1981, I stumbled into that church intentionally at night when nobody was there and asked God if he would show me who he is, and I named every religion in the world Christianity last. A few months later, uh, I came to Christ. Pretty amazing story that 40 years later, we'd be here, right? Who would have thought? So today... The title of this message is Jesus Works Here. Jesus Works Here, Your Life in the Workplace. And I want to thank you, Ben and Carla, for inviting me and all of you for having me here. And as the birds are chirping and singing, let's see if we can go through and see what we're going to do. Let's pray briefly, if you will. Father, we come before you. We ask that you would open the doors for your glory to be revealed, that you would speak to our hearts by your word, not me, not them, but you, your spirit here, changing us for your power and your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And they all said? Well, I want to open up with a humorous story about a man who pursued his dream to fly. Uh, It's a new story, and it illustrates well our need that we have to find purpose in life. Larry Walter spent his career as a truck driver, but his real lifelong ambition was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, Larry's poor eyesight disqualified him, so when he finally left the service, he had to settle for watching fighter jets crisscross the skies over his backyard. As he sat there in his lawn chair, he dreamed about his passion and the magic of flying. Then one day, Larry got an idea. So he went down to the Army-Navy surplus store where he bought a tank of helium and 45 weather balloons. These were heavy-duty balloons measuring more than four feet across when inflated. Back in his yard, Larry, with his friends, used straps to attach the balloons to his lawn chair, the kind of chair that you and I would have in our backyard. Then he anchored his chair to the bumper of his Jeep and proceeded to inflate the balloons with helium. Then he packed some sandwiches and drinks and a BB gun, figuring he could shoot out a few of the balloons when it was time to return to land. True story. Well, his preparations were complete. The balloons were filled. He sat in the chair with the sandwiches, drinks, and the gun, and he cut the anchoring cord from the Jeep. Now, Larry's plan was to lazily float about 100 feet above the earth, and when he wanted to come down, shoot the balloons and come back down to earth. However, Larry's plan didn't 
quite work out that way. For when he cut the cords, the chair shot up like it was fired out of a cannon. He didn't climb to just a few hundred feet. Larry climbed and he climbed and he climbed until he peaked out at 16,000 feet. Hardly able to breathe, he shot out a couple of the balloons and he ended up leveling out at about 11,000 feet, so the LA Times tells us. He was up there for over two hours. Eventually, Larry drifted over the approach corridor of the Los Angeles International Airport. As he was out there drifting around, a Transworld Airlines pilot and a Delta Airlines pilot radioed the control tower about passing a guy in a lawn chair at about 11,000 feet. And one of the pilots added, he's got a gun in his lap. At least it looks like one. Eventually, they were able to hover over Larry and drop a rescue line and bring it back to Earth. Now, as soon as Larry hit the ground, you can already guess what happened. He was arrested. And as he was being led away in handcuffs, a television reporter called out and said, Mr. Walters, why did you do it? Larry stopped and looked at the the reporter right in the eye, and he nonchalantly said, a man can't just sit around, you know. Now, I want to talk to you about passions, misguided passions, but right-guided passions. There are three keys to this uh, message or three points that we're going to cover. The first is your passion. The second is your discipline. And the third is your sacrifice. I want to talk about passion right now in the context of God and us because it's so often that our passions, we know more about our passions actually than we know about our work or about God. I, I survey CEOs all the time, and I said, how many of you CEOs know more about your passion, your hobby, than you know about your business? And after about a minute, their hands go up. And I think the same thing happens with Christians. We know more about our hobbies and our jobs than we know about the Lord, and it shouldn't be that way. Let's look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So the Bible tells us, and Jesus came and spoke and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And then the last word is, and so it shall be. Amen. Correct. In 1993, February 26, the van loaded with a large bomb was parked at the World Trade Center Tower in New York City. This would be the first major attack on the World Trade Center. The bomb in that parking spot was detonated, the parking garage destroyed, and several people tragically died. My good friend, Jerry Molnar, had an office on the 79th floor of the World Trade Center building. Jerry had called in sick that day, but most amazingly, Jerry's parking spot was actually the spot used for that bomb-laden van. Pretty amazing. Jerry escaped that and probably would have been taken in that crash. Now, Jerry was an interesting guy. He did everything big. He worked on Wall Street. He supplied his staff with alcohol, sometimes narcotics, keeping them working into the night hours, something not uncommon there in Wall Street in the 80s and the 90s. 
He had won and lost a million dollars over and over again in life. He was an alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous member. He was a gambler-aholic. He was a Gambler Anonymous member. He's a pretty crazy guy. In fact, I was talking to him yesterday. But Jerry was lost and empty. And he didn't know God. He and his wife inevitably found Christ. He kicked his habits and began to tell all his crazy friends about the Lord. One by one, he and his wife would invite them from the 79th floor and everywhere they could find in order to fulfill the Great Commission to their home. They were helping them to understand God, lead them to Christ. Jerry said, it became crazy. People came out of nowhere and everywhere coming to cross. He said, sometimes I'd have to go from the 79th floor to the 78th floor, Gary, because in order to go up to the 100th floor, you'd have to go there. And I'm coming down the escalator one day, and I look, and there's this big, giant guy coming up the escalator whom I had known a little bit. And I said, how are you doing today? The guy looks at him candidly, and he says, not good, I'm going to kill myself today, right after I go upstairs. This is the kind of New York story that's so common. Jerry says, come into my office. This six foot four guy is kneeling down in Jerry's office an hour later. Jerry, about five foot five, crying, coming to Christ. In fact, Jerry said, I cannot count the number of people that had been led to Christ during that time. He and his wife had a wonderful relationship. He ended up being asked to speak at various events, and he was speaking at one in Atlanta, Georgia, about 3,000 people for Christians. And as he finished, it was a Christian businessman meeting. He noticed his wife wasn't there. Normally, she would stay up in the room and pray, so he went up to tell her the great news about the event and found her lying on the bed having a massive heart attack. It was cardiac arrest. Jerry goes to her, tries chest compression, and she tragically dies in his arms. It turns out Jerry begins, again now, a new stage of depression, going down deep, just like he had before he was in the Lord. He had left her clothes in the closet. Didn't, he didn't want to leave that memory out. He didn't even change the alarm clock time. He didn't even change the alarm clock, uh, the buzzer. He just left it, and oftentimes he would sleep through the day. He'd sleep for hours and then go into his office. He had his own business. What happened one morning was astonishing. He wakes up. He goes to the door. He opens it. His door is on the Jersey Shore fronting the Trade Center, and both towers are are in flames. The jets had hit it. He gets a call. It's his daughter. She says, Dad, Dad, are you in the tower? And he said, No, honey, I'm at home. We didn't want to lose both of you, Dad. I'm so happy that that happened. Jerry escaped two events at the World Trade Center. God had his hand on him, and many of the people that he had led to Christ were there, and they went to heaven. It was a legacy that he left because he had a vision for God. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you how to get that vision. But Jerry, and I want to tell you another, about another man who Jerry knew, and his name was um, Mr. Bracca, if I remember correctly. And, Frank, and this gentleman was quite the interesting thing. His name was Al Bracca. He was a bond trading manager on the 104th floor. He was an executive for a large bond trading fund. Unlike Jerry, Al Bracca went to work that day. Al was a powerhouse for Christ uh, on his floor and a business leader. They regularly called Al Rev, 
when they came by. He just had a reputation, amongst other things that they called him, which, were, of course, were humorous. But that very day, he happened to be there. He was high enough up that when the jets came in, there was heat emanating, and it took some time. So they had some time, and people were scampering everywhere. The most amazing thing Jerry tells me is that the guys that were in there, they could see the, the actual lines that were going to their monitors and to their phones actually melting. The heat was coming up through the floor. They were at the windows. They were trying to go down. People were leaving and saying to Al, Rev, pray for me. Please pray for me. He said, you got it. I've got you covered, as he stayed there, much like an admiral, if you will, stayed on the ship. Towards the end of that time, just a few minutes, he realized there was nothing more to do. He called everybody around him, and he said, I'm going to heaven. Who wants to go with me? Fifty people came around his desk. He led them in a prayer to Christ, and he said, I want all of you to get on your cell phones right now and call your wives, your parents, and your kids. Everyone you can find to tell them that you prayed today to accept Jesus Christ, not to worry, you're going to heaven. And the most amazing thing here is that everything shut down. All IT to New York shut down when that terrorist attack took place. Of course, because the FBI, the CIA, the NSA would have had that done. These messages went into the databases and weeks later started coming through to the people who had lost their loved ones up there and who had prayed with Al saying, hey, we prayed with Al. God is with us. It's just an amazing story, mind-blowing and mind-boggling. You would never think about this kind of stuff, but it really does happen. The reason I was on the phone with Jerry today is I wanted to verify the story with Al Bracca and his wife, and, and Jerry were friends to verify it. So pretty amazing deal. Only God can do that kind of thing. What's keeping you from reaching out to those in Christ? I can tell you, and I'm going to tell you here because it's just biblical, it's very simple, and it comes down to your faith and your vision for God. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 22 through 25 here on the screen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins also. I want you to note two components to this verse or this passage. The first is that Jesus said to have faith in God. There are two kinds of faith, by the way. There's the faith that you have for salvation. It's the, what we call salvation faith in theological terms. The word is pistis. It means to believe, to trust. Then there's another faith that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which was a gift given by the power of the Holy Spirit to the early church. And that faith is supernatural faith to believe God for great things, to believe that he can reach the person in that greenhouse, that he can touch the person that is in your family, that he can do things for you that is, are extraordinary, but the caveat or the condition is that your vision is for God. You see, you believe things today, right? You believe that you're going to be successful in business or today that you're going to go to that special restaurant after you hear this sermon or perhaps to Randy's Donuts, which you shouldn't go to. 
Um, uh, so you're, you can believe for that. You can get it done. You can achieve it. But the reason Christians don't achieve the things that they should is because they don't have a proper vision for the Lord. Their passion for God isn't first. That's why Jesus said, it's just not my opinion, by the way, if I'm insulting you, let's listen to Jesus. He said, the children of this world are often wiser than the children of light. The children of this world, the people you work with and I work with, we set goals. We set one-year goals, two-year goals, five-year goals to build our companies from 50 million to 100 from 700 million to a billion, from a billion to a billion five. We know all the words, small cap, mid cap, micro cap, everything that you can think about, we plan for. Our strategy, our finance, every, every component. I've worked with military. I've worked with pro athletes. I've worked with government. We all set goals. At the end of the day, they're all goal setting. But what happens to the believer? Shouldn't we have goals for Christ? It's a key thing. In order to get a goal for Christ, you let God do it with you. That's the good thing. You don't have to contrive it, and probably if you do, it will not be as good. In fact, in a moment, I'll share, you a sto- I'll share with you a story about that. So you need faith. Second, your discipline. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what you do, uh, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Now, some years before 911, I got my first job out of college as an entry-level sales executive. It was probably about 200 years ago. I worked for an international transportation company, which boasted to be the largest in the world, with headquarters, dual headquarters in Sydney and London. We were in about 190 countries. When I began my job at 23, I had made a formal commitment to Christ probably about eight months before my starting day. I had, though, I was an ordinary Christian. I had one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. I was walking a little bit with God, and I was also running a little bit with the devil, right? As the Van Halen song goes. Until one day when I was reading the very words I just read you in Matthew. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. I was reading the Bible and I was thinking to myself, this isn't what I'm doing. I'm not really living for God. Either I'm going to do this thing all the way or I'm not going to do it at all. That's what's going to end up happening. I'm going to harden my heart. Now, I wasn't making a cognizant decision to say, no, I'm not going to do it at all. I knew that if I didn't do it, my heart would begin hardening And later on, I would veer out of the way. That night, I surrendered my life to Christ. I got rid of my idols, threw a trash can of junk out, albums, music, stuff I shouldn't have had. And interestingly enough, only this can only happen in L.A., as I'm driving to LAX airport on the 10 freeway way back then, something comes, I'm, I'm, 
I'm thinking to myself, what did I do? How could I do this? I lost all kinds of things through this. All of a sudden, I sense this power come upon me and just causes me, it's like singing inside of me, just caused me to weep. It was like the joy of God. Never experienced anything like this in my entire life. I'm not unusual either. This was the work of God's Holy Spirit that we just read about in Acts. And interestingly enough, it didn't happen the day I walked forward to accept Christ in front of a thousand people. It happened when I committed my life to Christ. I repented and gave my life to him. It can happen however God wants it to happen, but it happened to me. I walked into my office and my New York-born boss, this uh, unusual character, broke the mold, comes out and he goes, LaFerla, why are you smiling? Wipe that stupid smile off of your face. This is work. Now, I was a brand new believer. I didn't even know what was going on, and I barely knew the Bible. Several months later, I was there near LAX in our offices, and I was given the job of uh, receiving a courier. We received them from Sydney, from Hong Kong, from London, from Dubai, all over the world. That night, I was waiting for a London shipment, I remember, and you had to stay till 8 o'clock. I was a grunt, right? I'm sure you can all relate to that at some point in your life. And I was reading a book entitled, Is That Really You, God? And I was, it, was the, it was the book that started YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and somebody had given it to me, and so I was reading, and I noticed Acts 1-8 in there. The words, you shall be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. As I read those words, all of a sudden I felt this just impression upon my mind and my heart, you are going to do this. I'm reading a book called, Is That Really You, God? And at that moment, I was asking, is that really you? Is that, could God be speaking to me? Does he even do that? I didn't know very much about God in the Bible, but I felt him communicate it to me, and it made no sense. How could a 23-year-old account executive bring the gospel to the world. It seemed impossible. And so I had forgotten about it. Over the next two years, through an amazing providence, this I forgot, something else happened. Through the help of God, I was able to get and capture, they say, the largest financial sector client in the history of the industry away from our only competitor. You know them as DHL. In order to get it, I had to work with 25 different countries. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. We didn't even have cars. No. (laughs) But we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. But what we did have were telex machines. And so it, it was an extraordinary way that you had to communicate with people. At the end of that time, the day we signed the contract, my New York boss went crazy. He brought me into his office. He said, LaFerla, the whole world has heard about you. It's amazing. And they've also heard about me. I'm so happy that this happened. You're far too young, though, and you're far too inexperienced. And don't take this wrong, LaFerla, but you're far too stupid to have gotten this on your own. This entire situation persuades me to believe in the Lord, the one that you've been telling me about, though I don't live with for him at all. He actually made a commitment to Christ in the office right after that. He prayed. And then he said, by the way, I'm not going to give you a raise for this because we're growing too speedily, right? Happened to be a British company, right? So you can relate there, Ben. And we're not even going to give you your bonus because you didn't sign for it when we signed you up. 
But what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you around the world to check on this client. Some months later on my international tour, I was in Manila. They sent us to Manila during the uprising coup against Marcos, which is unbelievable. People were marching. Riots were taking place in the street. Guns were going off. And we were having our international transportation conference. As I was there, there was a table. I walked into our office. They shut and locked all the doors. People were marching down, and they put about, well, they put thousands of U.S. dollars on the table in, in, in packs of 400s, and they were giving it out. They said, look, we have $40,000 that we can't get out of here in addition to what we paid for the conference, and so you need to take this. So I turned to the guy next to me, and I, I was way in the back. I was 10 years younger than virtually everybody there. I said, what is going on? And he goes, oh, it's easy, man. He's British. He said they couldn't get their money out of, the, out of the country because of the coup, so they figured they'd save money and they'd fly us here to have our conference. And I said, and risk our lives? Only a finance guy could have thought of that kind of thing, right? So here we are in this time, but to me, the shock of my lifetime was about to come, and it was their lifestyles. They put us up at the Playboy Hotel, one of the raciest hotels in the world. They hired escorts, of which we didn't call them escorts. They, hired a, they, they rented a bar, and every single night, you had to go, your objective, you had to go and be with these guys and with these ladies. Now, just a brief commercial break here. I had already been a Christian now two years. There were a couple of hard-line facts I had learned. I did not witness the gospel on work hours. If somebody wanted to know about Christ, it was after. I found that those that witness during work hours oftentimes aren't good performers. So my objective was to perform at the A level and through performance at the A level, then God would use me to witness the gospel. In fact, that's what had happened with this particular bank client. I also did not drink and I, alcohol and I also did not curse. These were the things that I felt were the greatest witnesses and I learned the hard way with the kinds of people that I was around. Now back to the story. I declined to attend the first night event. Not, didn't go good for me. The second night event, saying that I need to speak on the third day so I need to prepare. After the third night event, I was expected to go to the night events and I said no. Things started getting intense. I was at the dinner table and the global vice president of marketing stands up and starts yelling at me, cursing me, telling me, you're not even married and we are and we're doing this stuff. What kind of a freak are you? Somebody started pushing me physically because in their country, we had people represented from all over the world, right? In their nation, this was disrespectful, but I refused. That night I went to bed, again lonely, pretty disillusioned. Is this what God meant when he spoke to me? Here I was in bed, four in the morning. All of a sudden, my phone rings. I pick it up, somebody hangs up, and then a knock at the door. I get up, walk over to the door, look through the spy hole, and there's a woman combing her hair. She's got her purses, putting her stuff away. I can just see right there. I do not open the door. A few hours later, I wake up again, 
and I go to breakfast, and it's unusually quiet. About 12 guys are at the breakfast table. I'm, they sit me in the middle. They leave one chair open intentionally. I show up. I'm there late. My boss is sick, sitting next to me, and about two minutes into it, he turns to me and he says, So, LaFerla, did you get a call last night? I said, I did. He said, did somebody knock at your door? I said, yes. And who was it? I said, it was a woman. He said, did you answer it? I said, no, I did not. He looks around at all the guys and he said, we know you didn't answer it because we were all standing around the corner waiting for you to answer it to see if you were really a, quote, Christian or not. They all started laughing. As I flew back to Singapore with our team, I was alone in the coach class way in the back of the plane. All the leaders of the company were up in first class. I felt totally disillusioned. I was not in the pack. I was not willing to go ahead with and along with what they had done, but I had done my job. I had won an account that made history. That's all I knew, and all I knew was that Jesus Christ was with me. That's all I could know. Right about then, the CEO of the Australasia region, the most powerful person in that global conglomerate, mind you, it was $2 billion in 1980s. It's a pretty big company. He gets up out of the first class, and I see him moving around, and as attache, in those days you have an attache, a guy that follows you around, comes with him, and they start towards the back. I'm in the, like the 25th row, and I'm thinking, there's a bathroom up in first class. You should use that one. Don't come back here because you're scaring me that you're coming. And as he's coming, I'm noticing that he's looking right at me, and I, my mind is just going 100 miles an hour. He comes up to me, and he says, are you Gary? In an Australian accent. I said yes, and at that moment, I thought, looks like I'm going back to the States. It looks like my job is over. He says, he went on to say, I heard that my men gave you a bad time. I smiled and I said, yes, sir. He said, are you a Christian? And then I thought, I'm done. I said, yes. Then the shock came. He said, Gary, you don't know me. I'm from Australia and I grew up with my parents as missionaries for the Baptists. My parents lived their lives as missionaries and I grew up on the mission field. I have to tell you, Gary, as he looked straight at me in the eyes, I have not followed in their footsteps. And I'm ashamed to say. However, I respect your life and the stand that you took. You're doing a great job, Gary. Thank you. Spun on a dime, went back to first class. And at that moment, I thought to myself, God has done his work and he fulfilled his word. My stand for Christ, my reputation as a worker went from, meeting, went from that meeting to Europe, to the Middle East, to Asia, pretty much around the world because of the people who were present at that meeting and because of my endorsement from the CEO. What keeps you from standing for Christ? Joshua chapter 1, 8 is the key. Study this book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night, and you will be sure to obey everything in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Jesus Christ, 
in his pre-incarnate nature, followed them around, led them through that wilderness, brought Joshua into the, con- in the, con- into the promised land. You see him in Joshua 5. He gives him the word of God, tells him what to do. This is what we must have as a part of our Christian life. Being disciplined comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, which I'm going to share with you in a moment with my final story. But if I can get your attention right now, being disciplined in the word of God is the key to getting a vision for the Lord. See, this is my Bible. It's a little military Bible. I carry it around. I've gone through a few of them. And right here in the front, I write down every time I read through it. You see, if you read the Bible 30 minutes a day, you'll go through it easily in a year. I've gone through it 14 times since 2013. I'm not boasting. That's probably not many times. But the point is, is that, or it may be to you, the point is, I read it because it gives me vision for his kingdom. You see, I was alone there in Manila. I was alone in, in Singapore. I was alone in Geneva. I was alone in London. I was alone in Hong Kong. But I was never alone spiritually because God was with me. And most importantly, I could envision God using me like Daniel or like Joseph. After all, those, that's the reason those histories, not stories, are given to us. Or like Paul the Apostle. Now, I'm not comparing myself to any of those people. All I know is if God could use them, he could use me. And I never thought of myself as a preacher or a pastor. All I knew were the tools that God had given me to use. And all I had was the faith that he had given me to have. And by reading the word, I was instilled in that faith and I had a vision. After all, what do you read? What is your favorite journal that you read today? Think about it. What website do you go to most? What social media site? Have you ever timed yourself to see how much time you spend on those sites? And think about this. In 15 minutes a day, you can become an expert in something within two to three years. So you might say, well, we're all experts in Facebook, or we're all experts in X and Y, but think about being an expert in God, putting God above your hobby, God above your, 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 your blessed desires that you have for your daily life, because God's the only one that can answer your life in the way that he has. Thirdly and last, your sacrifice. John 12, 24 says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. World War II produced many heroes. One was Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare was assigned to an aircraft carrier as a fighter pilot in the South Pacific. One day, while out on a practice mission called a sortie, Butch realized that somebody forgot to top off his fuel tank. Unable to complete his mission, he wired his wingmen and said he was going back to the American fleet. What happened after that moment became a result of military history. As Butch was going back to the American fleet, he sighted out of the east a squadron of Japanese Zeros descending upon the American fleet. The American fleet was virtually defenseless because all of the fighters were out on a practice mission. 
Butch had to make a decision. Either he could ditch his aircraft into the Pacific Ocean and be a coward, or he could engage the entire squadron alone without enough fuel and give his life for his country. He chose the latter. And after a frightening air battle, unbelievably, the Japanese Zeros broke off their assault on the American fleet. Butch's fighter limped back to the American fleet on fumes of gas. He was declared an American hero. He is the first one to receive the Medal of Honor, the Naval Medal of Honor, and he is America's first Top Gun. You all know him if you fly at all because O'Hare International Airport in Chicago is named after Butch. And in, I believe, the E-Wing, there's an entire tribute to him. Well, there in Chicago, many years before, there was another man, very different man, named, nicknamed Easy Eddie. During Easy Eddie's life, Al Capone ruled Chicago. Al Capone trafficked in bootlegging booze, prostitution, contraband, narcotics, and murder. Easy Eddie's relationship to Big Al? Well, he was Big Al's lawyer. And for being Big Al's lawyer, the second man in the mafia, he earned such a massive amount of money that when Easy Eddie decided to settle down and build a house, he bought an entire city block in downtown Chicago to build it. His estate went end-to-end, back-to-back. Now, although Easy Eddie was a, an attorney to one of the biggest killers in American history, Easy Eddie did have one soft spot, and that was his son, whom he loved dearly. He made sure that his son had great clothes, great cars, great education. But about midlife crisis, Easy Eddie realized that there were two things he could never give his son. One was a good name, and the other was a good example. After a year or so of deliberating, Easy Eddie made a decision that became jurisprudence history in America. He decided to turn himself in. And with that, they asked that he also turn in Al Capone. After the courts took place, the largest mob bust in American history, Easy Eddie was set free for his work in helping the government collect and do the greatest work they had ever done in the history of their jurisprudence for Bob. So it was the biggest mob bust of all time. And you can write the script because Easy Eddie, within months of being released for the work that he did, He died in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. What do these two stories have to do with one another? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. And that is what sacrifice is all about. And so we close with this scripture. How do you make such a sacrifice? Well, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That word power in the Greek is energamata, 
dunamis. It means dynamite power. And you will be my witnesses. The Greek word is martyrus. It means martyr. Telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How do you get this? How do you do the three things that we talked about? How is it that you have a vision for God? How is it that you're disciplined for the Lord? How is it that you can make a sacrifice for Christ? Ask the Lord to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. And surrender your life to him. Let's see if we can do that right now. Father, we come before you. We praise you for your work and your will in our lives. Glorify your holy name. Magnify it. And now I pray for each here, Lord, that they might have the experience that Jerry or Al did in their lives in coming to Christ. They may not die for you in the way that Al did, uh, but they may seek you and have a vision to reach the world for you in their lives and to be blessed in their lives more than they've ever been, much like I have been, much like others have been when they surrender completely to you. So if you'd like to pray with me, you can pray that same prayer that's been prayed so many times here and that I prayed with so many people to receive the power of God in your life. If you want to repeat with me, you can. Father, I come before you. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. That my life would be surrendered to Christ. That you would glorify your name with me. And show me your will and your way. Give me all you have for me. In Jesus' name. And they all said, thank you.